0: Unearthed Memphis, your Memphis history podcast with hosts Alan Compton and Tara Ingram.
1: Hey everybody and welcome back to Unearthed Memphis. It's the Christmas season and we're a tad bit late with this episode because Christmas. And we've been a tad bit busy and time just got away from us. It does happen. It does, but never fear, we're back with a new fabulous episode.
0: And even though it's a little weird this year, we're still purchasing gifts for our families, even if we don't get to see some of them in person. Uh, This year, we chose to shop small and local. We visited some shops on Broad Avenue and Main Street for several goodies.
1: And also, we've been very good about our mask wearing, hand sanitizing, and physical distancing because I'm in the medical field, so I am all about safety.
0: That's true. Uh, We really want our local businesses to survive this pandemic. So while we generally support local anyway... We made it a point to do almost all of our shopping, local or small businesses.
1: Uh, with the exception of, as my coworker Lisa's kids call it, Cole's House. Because well. it's, it's kind of hard to find your 95-year-old grandma pajamas on Etsy. Yeah. So, <laughs> <laughs> we had to visit Cole's House. <laughs> uh, but we tend want to give a little shout out to one of our favorite shops on South Main, which is called Stock and Bell. And we visited there this weekend, and they have fantastic stuff. It's a combination of Stock and Bell products with local goods mixed in and a little local coffee shop, Dr. Beans, on the side. Uh, It's very Rose Apothecary for you Schitt's Creek fans out there, and we really enjoyed chatting with the proprietor, Erica, as well. Uh, She was super nice, and while we went in there for gifts for other people, we mostly came out with stuff for ourselves. (laughs) <laughs>
0: yes, yeah, that happens as well. Uh, they also have a location on Overton Square as well.
1: They do. They yes. do. I think it's called uh, Stockham Bell. It's
0: Stockham Bell. It's also called Stockham Bell. Overton Square. Sure. In parentheses. The important part is Stockham Bell. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> there are other great gift shops, too, on South Main, uh, such as Prima's Bakery and Boutique and Walking Pants Curiosities that we enjoy shopping at as well. So don't forget to support your local shops when buying things this Christmas. Also, if you have any local shops or small shops that you enjoy, let us know. We love supporting individuals rather than big miss- businesses whenever possible. And all of this talk about South Maine brings us to the topic of our episode. Today we're going to talk about one of our absolute favorite places in Memphis, the Orpheum Theater. Yay! Yay! The Orpheum has become a staple of our social activities in the past few years. We are season ticket holders for Orpheum's Broadway season, but we basically try to attend events there as often as we can. Uh, we have a fantastic time every time we're there,
1: and we are the biggest theater nerds. Yeah, huge. Ad- <laughs> admittedly, uh, we weren't season ticket holders until Hamilton came, uh, because there was no way we were gonna miss no, that. No, that was
0: the only way to ensure tickets. At <laughs> exactly.
1: The time, so. Uh, but before we went and and got season tickets, we went to pretty much every show anyway. But let me tell you, it's worth getting season tickets so you don't have to fight people for the seats that you want. And we not physically
0: fight, but well, not yet, It doesn't come least. to that usually.
1: We <laughs> uh, were incredibly lucky to have an amazing theater that can offer these fabulous Broadway shows. Yeah,
0: we are. So the Orpheum we see today is not actually the original building.
1: Um, <laughs> really? No. Uh,
0: the original theater was not even called the Orpheum. That name wouldn't appear on the front of the building until 1907. Uh, the original theater, built in 1890 on the southwest corner of Maine and Beale was known as the grand opera house. It was well known among theater goers and it was touted as the fanciest theater outside New York city. Um, it was managed by Frank gray, a gentleman that had come up in theater beginning his career as an usher. And Mr. Gray was a well-respected uh, man in the theater community for reliably booking only the best shows available he was even nicknamed the Dean of Southern theater managers.
1: In 1899, the Grand Opera House was purchased by John D. Hopkins, already a theater owner in St. Louis and Chicago, who had a background in vaudeville and minstrel shows. The theater was renamed Hopkins Grand Opera. Hopkins immediately began making improvements to the theater, replacing the gas lamps with electric lighting and brightening the drab interior even further by repainting it in gray and gold. Even though vaudeville was the theater's main focus, they also hosted more refined acts, such as the great French stage actor Sarah Bernhardt during one of her world tours.
0: And we happen to notice just this past weekend that Sarah Bernha- Bernhardt has a star on the sidewalk in front of the Orpheum.
1: It does. Uh, Unfortunately, sophisticated acts like Sarah Bernhardt merely act as a facade for some of Hopkins' seedier dealings. Mm. Mm -hmm. He was involved in a lawsuit around 1906 because of his plan to sublease the theater to the Eastern Burlesque Wheel. And this was not a popular idea among the theater community, and Hopkins drew so much harsh criticism that it prompted him to try and sell the theater. He had no such luck until more than a year later when the theater changed hands to the Orpheum-Vaudeville circuit. Hopkins died, presumably from kidney failure, just more than two years later.
0: In the New York Times public announcement about the theater changing hands, a phrase was used to hint at what kind of theater fare patrons could expect, and also to appeal to a more elite clientele. this This phrase delights me to no end. After the functional portion of the announcement, telling about renovations and the name change, it says, advanced vaudeville will be served. (laughs) It's amazing.
1: So finally, we're in 1907, and we have a theater in Memphis called the Orpheum. The Orpheum saw great success with its vaudeville acts for nearly two decades. In 1923, a fire broke out either during or just after, depending on the source, a strip tease performed by the famous singer and recording artist Blossom Seeley. Blossom is credited with playing a pivotal role in bringing jazz and ragtime to the mainstream in the U.S. Fortunately, no one was harmed in the fire, but the theater was a total loss. It burned to the ground.
0: I guess you could say that Blossom Seely's performance brought the house down.
1: <laughs> no. All right, moving, moving on, moving on. The site sat dormant for about four years before ground was broken on the new theater on the foundation of the old building, but the new building was twice as big with a much more luxurious appearance. The new theater was designed by sibling architects named Cornelius and George Rapp. Their architecture firm, Rapp & Rapp, has quite the list of well-known buildings that they designed, enough so that they deserve for us to briefly tangent into their works.
0: Uh, They also have a third brother that was also an architect as well really I didn't put that in there but so yeah, they rap, rap 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 and rap uh, <laughs> Now he was not part of the firm but but he did design theaters so uh rap and rap were known to be the foremost designers of early 20th century movie palaces having designed more than 400 theaters in their time here are some of the buildings that were designed by rap and rap the central park theater in new york city the chicago theater in well chicago mm-hmm. The Paramount Building in Times Square.
1: That's the one with the giant four-faced clock on top.
0: Yep. The Nederlander Theater in Chicago, formerly known as the Oriental Theater. The name was changed in 2019.
1: And if you know even basic stuff about Chicago history, you might have heard about the devastating fire that happened in the Iroquois Theater in 1903 that killed just short of 600 people and began theater safety reform in the U.S. Well, the Nederlander Theater, designed by Rap and Rap, replaced the Iroquois Theater.
0: Yeah. Also, I actually performed in that theater for a couple of weeks back in 2000. It's really lovely in there. <laughs> uh, Rap and Rap also designed most of the theaters in the Orpheum Theater circuit. They're all over the United States.
1: And the new Orpheum Theater was built at the cost of $1.6 million, an enormous financial undertaking. In today's dollars, that total would work out to be somewhere around $23 million. The money was thought to have been well spent once the theater patrons saw the extravagant furnishings and the size of the seating area. The theater was built to seat around 2,800 people, making it twice as large as its predecessor, and also making it the largest theater in the Orpheum circuit. The theater's new furnishings featured gold and silver leaf, marble, lush carpets, crystal chandeliers, and a brand new Wurlitzer organ that was used for performances and also for accompanying silent films. The newly built theater opened its doors in October of 1928.
0: The theater was also equipped for talking pictures, which had been introduced a year before the theater's opening with the release of The Jazz Singer, which is the first talkie. Um, but like many other theaters, the Orpheum still made use of its pipe organ and still does. It does. Yeah. Uh, the theater owners contacted the Wurlitzer Company and purchased a three manual, 13 rank style 240. Theater pipe organ.
1: Okay. (laughs) Care (laughs) to explain? (laughs) For those of you that
0: might have just blacked out from technical jargon exposure, uh, let me explain. No, there's too much. Let me sum up. (laughs) Uh, Style 240 is basically the model number of the organ. Uh, Three manual means that there are three tiers of keys and that they are meant to be played with your hands as opposed to a pedal board, which is played with your feet. And finally, 13 rank refers to the number of pipe sets available for the organ to play through, which provide the different sounds for the player to choose from. Um, there, are over, there are just over 1,100 pipes ranging from 16 feet in length all the way down to the size of a pencil. In the 1980s, an additional set of wooden pipes was donated to the theater to enhance the organ's bass voice.
1: And the are actually just returned in the past two months from undergoing a full restoration. The Orpheum launched a fundraising campaign about three years ago to raise the $500,000 necessary to restore the non-working parts of the instrument and restore the finish to its original beauty. The finish had been damaged during a small stage fire in the 1950s when part of the original stage curtain caught fire and fell on top of the organ. Uh, we were not able to attend the post-restoration concert they held a few weeks back, but from what we hear, the organ looks and sounds fantastic.
0: Yeah, I always get—I love when we get to geek out about music-related stuff we run across when we're writing these episodes. <laughs> I might go on a little long about it when it comes to that stuff, but it's only because I find it fascinating.
1: And that's okay. <laughs> Me too.
0: <laughs> All right, back to the subject at hand.
1: As the popularity of movies increased, the popularity of vaudeville-style acts began to wane. Times were growing tighter and tighter, and when the Great Depression hit, the Orpheum just couldn't survive. As a result, the theater was sold in 1940 to Michael Lightman, owner of the Malco Theater chain. The name of the theater changed from the Orpheum to Malco, and they began showing first-run movies. The theater ran uh, under the only film format until 1977, when it was closed after a period of low attendance. The entirety of downtown became pretty desolate, and most of the businesses in the area were struggling.
0: After Lightman closed the theater, the building was actually in danger of being demolished. Thankfully for all of us theater lovers, uh, this did not happen. In fact, in 1970, a group of concerned Memphians formed the Memphis Development Foundation in hopes of sparking a revitalization of the downtown area. To help this along, they purchased the theater, changed the name back to The Orpheum, and made plans to start bringing Broadway-style productions and concerts back to the theater. In 1980, Memphis Development Foundation hired Pat Halloran as its president and CEO. And all you have to do is look to The Orpheum's smaller venue to know how that relationship turned out. The theater's named The Halloran Center. Pat Halloran held his position for 35 years.
1: And in 1982, thanks to some effective fundraising and campaigning by Memphis Development Foundation, acting under the name Friends of the Orpheum, along with the generosity of Memphis and the Mid-South community, $5 million was raised to fund a full restoration of the Orpheum to return it to its 1928 grandeur. The restoration efforts worked wonders for the theater's appearance, and they're still evident today. The theater currently looks very much like it did in 1928 when it first opened.
0: The renovations were also geared towards making the theater more accessible for modern performers and audiences. Uh, Restrooms and dressing rooms were upgraded. The new HVAC systems were installed. Two loading docks were added to better accommodate touring shows. Concession areas, additional restrooms, and a new box office were added on the south side of the lobby and a green room was added in the northeast corner of the theater.
1: Other updates included the construction of an expanded orchestra pit and a hydraulic pit lift that added extra space to the front stage area in the absence of an orchestra. After the renovations were completed, they celebrated their grand reopening with a concert called Champagne and Gershwin. Ooh.
0: Ooh. <laughs> <Pink>. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Cheers, I guess.
1: In 1996, the Orpheum underwent a second, much larger renovation, to the tune of $8 million. As Broadway shows became larger and more complex, their props and effects also became larger and more elaborate. To accommodate these needs and to ensure that larger shows would include Memphis as a site on their tours, it was necessary to expand the loading docks, the stage, and the backstage area. The orchestra pit was enlarged, loading docks were added and expanded, the stage was extended to the depth of 50 feet, new technology was installed, and 13 dressing rooms were added. There was also a warm-up area added behind the stage so that dancers could have enough room to ready themselves before shows.
0: These improvements garnered interest from many of the larger Broadway shows, such as Les Mis, Miss Saigon, Wicked, Phantom of the Opera, The Lion King, and most recently, Hamilton. And without these expansions and improvements, the Orpheum could never have accommodated shows of this size. Actually, now that I think about it, the show that I performed with back in the early 2000s, Blast, is one of the shows that probably would have had a very hard time fitting on that stage prior to the expansion. I was no longer with the show when it came through Memphis, but I believe it was back in March of 2003.
1: So ticket sales were growing, thanks to the Orpheum's last facilities expansion, which began to turn the heads of major Broadway shows like the ones we just mentioned. But in addition to this uptick in sales, the theater's community outreach and educational programs became larger than the theater could accommodate within its walls. In response to this, the Crump Firm drew up designs for the -the state-of-the-art educational facility that would house a 361-seat performance venue, lots of classrooms, and multi-purpose event spaces. In 2015, just to the south of the theater, the Halloran Center for Performing Arts and Education was opened, and it is a very beautiful venue.
0: It really is, yeah. We went to see Raul Medan at the Halloran Center not long ago, uh, who is, by the way, a very amazing guitarist, singer, songwriter. Mm. He's kind of in the R&B realm.
1: Oh, he's amazing. Yeah,
0: uh, Look him up. Anyway, we thoroughly enjoyed ourselves at our first time in the Halloran Center.
1: This facility has done wonders for the Orpheum's education and outreach efforts. They do such a wonderful job with this. It's always amazing to hear about the events that they host for young people, and we're extremely proud of the work that they do. And so here are a few of the educational programs they host throughout the year, for those of you who might not know. The Orpheum STAR Council. STAR stands for Students Take a Role. This program gives high school theater students an opportunity to learn what goes into hosting events at the Orpheum. They can assist with hosting the theater Saturday series of educational events, help to coordinate the pre-show and post-show events for some shows, and even act as ushers during the performances.
0: Uh, The Orpheum High School Musical Theater Awards show is hosted to celebrate and promote musical theater in the Mid-South. This program is part of the Jimmy Awards, which is a national high school musical theater award uh, program produced by the Broadway League that includes over 40 programs across the U.S.,
1: the Mending Hearts Camp, which is a performing arts day camp for young people who have suffered the loss of one or both parents. Surrounded by a group of peers who have suffered the same type of loss, they get to build self confidence and find their creative voice through acting, movement, music, and design classes, culminating in a performance showcase at the end of the camp.
0: Camp SAY, SAY stands for Stuttering Association for the Young. This is a free two-day camp involving games and performance activities that are geared towards developing teamwork, communication, connection, and creativity while accommodating the the evolving needs of the young people who stutter.
1: The Orpheum Theater Group Teaching Artists Training Program trains local artists and educators to harness their artistry and creativity to help create high-quality instruction for youth and communities throughout the Mid-South. They look for passionate, energetic, and open-minded artists who represent diverse cultural backgrounds, communities, and artistic disciplines, and their goal is to elevate the standard for teaching artistry in this area and provide those young people with the skills to develop sustainable careers as teachers while continuing to share their artistry with their community.
0: The Orpheum and the Halloran Center also host field trips, even virtual ones right now to cater to our current situation, for student groups and many opportunities for teacher professional development as well.
1: And I don't know what other theaters do for their communities when it comes to education and community outreach, but it seems that if they're doing even half of what the Orpheum is doing, that's still a lot. Uh, I can only hope that other areas of the world have this type of participation in their communities from their local theaters. No kidding.
0: So in 2016, the Memphis Development Foundation found itself under new leadership when Pat Halloran decided to retire after 35 years. He was succeeded by Brett Batterson. New leadership also came with a rebranding. The organization was now called the Orpheum Theater Group, as it is today, and their stated mission is to enhance the communities they serve by utilizing the performing arts to entertain, educate, and enlighten while preserving the historic Orpheum Theater and the Halloran Center for Performing Arts and Education.
1: Since then, there's been one more set of renovations completed involving the addition of more restrooms and restoring much of the gold leaf work and repainting the auditorium ceiling. And we can tell you firsthand that the addition of more restrooms has had a huge effect on our <laughs> fan experience. If you have ever gone to a show prior to 2016, you might have noticed that being able to say you got to go to the restroom during intermission was like saying you had won a 200 meter sprint.
0: It was. If your fanny wasn't speed walking up the aisle before the intermission house lights came up, you were likely to be holding it for another 90 minutes or so. So we, we really appreciate those restroom additions.
1: Yes, we do. Me, especially. <laughs> <laughs> Counting all. All of the spaces in both the Orpheum and the Halloran Center, there are different spaces that are available to rent. Um, People host everything in these spaces, performances, company parties, conferences, weddings, receptions, you name it, they're set up to host it. The Orpheum provides bartenders and housekeeping, and they have a list of preferred catering services that you can choose from if you rent a space from them. Between having such gorgeous facilities to the fact that the theater is smack in the middle of downtown, it's kind of hard to beat when it comes to hosting an event. All of the information can be found on the Orpheum's website.
0: Right. So not too long ago, but prior to the pandemic, when the planets aligned and she and I had both uh, both had a weekday off at the same time, we went on one of the Orpheum's daytime tours and it was fantastic.
1: It was.
0: Uh, these tours are given to by volunteer docents called PHOTOS, which stands for Friends of the Orpheum. And not only did they do a tremendous job, but these two ladies were absolutely adorable.
1: They were seriously the cutest ladies <laughs> ever. Oh my God, I love them. <laughs> One of them was
0: named Dorothy, but I sadly cannot remember the other one's name. Oh, uh, me either, but uh, she was so you, cute. I know if you look on the Orpheum's YouTube channel, they have a little clip of Dorothy answering some questions, and she's just as adorable there. <laughs> Uh, They were both retirees, and they now volunteer a lot of their free time to the Orpheum.
1: Photo volunteers give guided tours. They help scan or collect tickets at the theater entrances. They assist with pre-show and post-show events. And they're also the lovely, smiling people that hand you your programs and show you to your seat before each performance. They selflessly volunteer their time simply because they love the Orpheum.
0: The photo volunteers also host cast parties or luncheons for the shows that pass through the Orpheum where they will actually cook and prepare all of the food for the gathering. These parties are typically held in the Broadway Room, which is in the northeast corner of the theater.
1: And I think it was a green room at one point, mm-hmm. and also maybe a suit shop.
0: It was. We found photographic evidence of that, I believe. Yes. Um, we have heard from multiple sources that this is something that touring casts and crews know about ahead of time and look forward to when they can perform in Memphis. As far as anyone knows, these photocast gatherings are the only time on their tours that a group from the Host Theater prepares home-cooked food for the cast and crews. They have been doing this for nearly 40 years at this point.
1: And they have recently released a cookbook of some of the favorite recipes from these photocast parties, and we are soon to have one of those on our way to the house, I believe. (laughs) Uh, If you're interested in having a copy of your very own, it's available on the Orpheum's website. It's called The Cast Party, a collection of recipes by the Friends of the Orpheum. And I think they sell for about $20, which is a great deal. Yeah, it's a good deal. So one of the coolest parts of the guided tour we took of the Orpheum was getting to see the show murals that are painted all over the walls in the backstage area. And typically when a cast comes through town, especially if it's their first time performing a theater, a mural is painted somewhere in the backstage representing their show. Sometimes it's a reproduction of the show's playbill or poster, but sometimes they do a different mural for a specific touring cast. But once it's finished, the whole cast and crew of the show sign the mural. The walls of the Orpheum backstage are covered in all these murals.
0: Yeah, My show Blast uh, even has a mural backstage at the Orpheum. Like I said earlier, I wasn't still with the show when they came through Memphis, but about 60% of the touring cast at that point were people that I had performed with, so that was fun to see. For those of you that don't know this, I performed in the original London and Broadway cast of a show called Blast, and between London and Broadway, we did a short test tour of about eight eight cities around the United States. I left the show in 2001 after we closed in New York. We were one of the shows that didn't survive the theater closings after 9-11, and we closed a short time later. I'm sad that we closed, but it brought me back to Memphis, so hey... Silver Linings.
1: I'm, I'm pretty glad that it closed. <laughs> Me too. Well, I'm, not, I'm not glad that it closed. Not glad but, that it closed. Yeah. But I'm glad you came back to Memphis. Right. Funny thing, though, I'm going to uh, do a little aside. Um, My best friend, when we were talking about this show years ago, said, hey, I was in New York and I saw a blast. And I was like, are you serious? And then she pulled out the playbill and I was nice. like, yep, there he is. There's my autograph. That's right. <laughs> Anywho, I thought that was kind of cool. She knew him before I did, sort of, (laughs) kind of. (laughs) Kind of. We would be remiss not to talk about the Orpheum's most popular permanent resident, Mary. And it really wouldn't be us if we didn't lean a little towards the spooky when the opportunity arose, now would we? (laughs) No, we would not. Uh, For those who have not heard the tales, Mary is the Orpheum's most favorite resident ghost.
0: Although nobody can say definitively how Mary came to reside in the theater, it is believed that she met her end either by a trolley or car accident near the theater and wandered in after she passed, or that she was injured in the crash and brought inside the theater which she then passed.
1: Some stories also say that she died in the fire that destroyed the theater in the 1900s.
0: Yeah, but we've already said that no one was hurt in it, so that's really... Right, connected. so... It's, it's a vague connection. There.
1: Exactly. Uh, Mary has been spotted in various places inside the theater, but one of those places is her favorite seat, seat C5 on the mezzanine level. And rumor has it, if you sit in her seat for the performance, you might just be in for a little pestering from a cranky 12-year-old spirit. Uh, We won't go into more detail about other spirits uh, that are said to roam the Orpheum, because this is a Christmas episode, after all, and not a Halloween episode.
0: And we're not telling the Christmas carol.
1: We are not. We're also not telling a Doctor Who story. That's true. Because all of those (laughs) Christmas episodes are dastardly. Right. Uh, But we'll save that stuff for later.
0: Speaking of Christmas, here's a gift idea for a theater lover in your world. Uh, The Orpheum has a program called Name a Seat, where you can personalize a nameplate to be installed on any seat in the theater. Well, any seat that's not already taken, of course. Right. I don't know of a better way to honor the theater-loving friend or family member, or yourself, that's what we're going to do, Yep. uh, than to make uh, their name a permanent fixture in such a wonderful theater. At some point, we will do this, because I definitely want to be immortalized that there were a few. (laughs) Oh, yeah, me too.
1: Like, we have to have our name there. All right, guys. Thanks for listening to the story we unearthed. Yeah, thank you. Uh, This is going to be our last episode for this season. Woo! Uh, But we'll be back with season two in February. And as always, you can find us on your favorite podcast listening app. And also check out our website at unearthmemphis.com. Follow us on Instagram at unearthmemphis. Facebook at facebook.com slash unearth901. Twitter at unearth901. Or drop us an email at unearthmemphis at gmail.com. Uh, We love to hear from everyone. Questions, comments, suggestions, corrections, or just general chatter is appreciated and enjoyed.
0: We'd also like to thank you all, our wonderful listeners, for tuning in to hear us geek out about our amazing city. We truly enjoy sharing our research with everybody, and we hope you're enjoying it too. We do feel very lucky that you lovely people have decided that we're worthy of your valuable time.
1: If you have just a tiny bit more time, it would help us greatly if you would share the podcast with your friends, word of mouth, even in virtual form, like sharing on social media is a powerful thing for podcasts. And another thing that would help us out a lot if you have the time would be to write a review for our podcast on whichever podcast listening app you enjoy.
0: Right. All right. Here's our usual disclaimer. We are not historians. We are simply two people who are interested in Memphis history. We have done research and are trying to provide accurate history as best we can. There is a possibility that some of these statements are incorrect, but we have tried to verify all the info so that we are not putting out any untrue info. Uh, to the best of our knowledge, what we are saying is correct, but let us know if you have any things to add or correct. In the show notes, you will find links to the articles we use and book titles, etc. to gather our information.
1: All right, that's it for this episode yeah. and the season. And the season. Woo-hoo! <laughs> season one. That's a wrap. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, thanks. Bye! Bye!
0: Unearthed Memphis is written, produced, and engineered by Alan Compton and Tara Ingram. The music was written, performed, and recorded by Donnie Wayne Smith and Alan Compton.